Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, if you have a Bible with you, and I really want to encourage you that it would be a good idea, we have some at the back of the back table. Um, I know that many of you have the technology, so it's either on your phone or on a tablet. John chapter 17 is where we're going to be at today. So let me give you a little bit of a, uh, an introduction to this one-off sermon, something that we don't always do at the Rock Church. Um, but it's uh, obviously coming on the heels of our spiritual warfare series that we did for six weeks. Uh, we were in John 17, which is, that's kind of a hint, that's kind of interesting. It's, so it's, it's kind of a follow-on in one respect. Uh, but typically what happens is, you know, Rudy and I, we planned out where we were going to go uh, for the spring season, and uh, we are going to be back in the Gospel of Luke next Sunday. So that was the plan. But then just the way things line up, we want to be, we are in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 22. We've been going through it for like two and a half years here and there. And so it's going to line up perfectly with Easter. So this Sunday kind of like was, what are we going to do, right? And so typically what we do is we pray and we ask the Spirit uh, to help us. And uh, also in community group last week, I asked some people, hey, so what would be a good follow-up? What questions are unanswered from the spiritual warfare series? And people gave me some really good ideas that didn't end up being good enough. Sorry. But here's the thing. Um, one of the main reasons why both Rudy and I were like, yeah, was, well, it's two. One, we were in John 17 a lot during the spiritual warfare series where um, the Lord is praying for us that the Heavenly Father, which we'll see today, does not take us out of the world, but keep us safe from the evil one. Um, but also is because uh, about two and a half months ago now, we had our first of the new year worship and, and prayer night, worship, prayer, and praise night. And that night was focused on, as they've been so far, on the fact that we are, as a church, praying about a renewed vision for our church, and specifically for this building since we closed the Ledge Cafe, the coffee shop, in December 31st. Um, and we, we closed it for good reasons, not because it wasn't doing well, but for good reasons, um, and uh, most of you know what those are. And so we've been praying about, like, what does the Lord want us to do with the building, um, um, uh, Monday to Saturday, because we do want to be open to bless and, and uh, take care of this community in whatever way we can, but also as a church gathering here. Pre-pandemic, we were too big to actually fit in here, so we were looking for a new building. We still are, uh, despite the fact that so many people are away today. You probably don't see that. We have a lot of children, and so our kids' rock upstairs is overflowing, so we've been there. After the first um, meeting, uh, which was at the end of January, I believe, uh, Rudy asked everyone, we broke up in little prayer groups, and he asked everyone to make a list of the key prayers that we have and we, the needs we have for the church itself. How can we pray for the rock, for the church? And number one on all of the lists, when he compiled them all together and we were meeting together on the next Tuesday morning, was unity and broken relationships. And I looked at Rudy and went, ouch, <laughs> Really? And then I was like, yeah, really? I mean, it's an earnest desire to pray for those things, right, that our church has. And so that's another reason why we're doing it. Um, I felt it was not just because we've had our fair share of dissensions and divisions over the past two, two and a half years. Thank you, Mr. COVID, right? Like for some people, you're doing too much, and for other people, you're not doing enough, right? And okay, so that maybe wasn't so funny, but... It's just been a struggle. Um, but it's also this. Listen, sadly, my experience in church since I've been about 23 um, as a Christian, the Protestant church, raised Catholic, yeah, it's, it's happening all the time. I've been in church splits. 
I've been to churches, every church, where there's all kinds of contention and dissension about this theology and that theology and so forth. And so it's really something that we thought we should look at, and I'm hoping to look at it in a way with you today, from John 17, which is Jesus' prayer, and the key in it is that we would be one, that we would be one. That's his, his key prayer for the Father, is that we would be one. And so I hope to show you three things today from that. Number one, I don't normally have three-point sermons, but today it just happens to work. So let's go with that, all right? So the title is that they may be one and that we would have, number one, unity in. What do we we need to have unity in? Number two, what is our unity supposed to be for? And number three, unity how, okay? Because it's a challenge, right? So I hope to be able to help you with that. So as most of you know, uh, our family, Janice, uh, um, Jonathan, our youngest, and our middle son, Matthew, moved here 13 uh, years ago, uh, February 14th, Valentine's Day, can never forget that day, to plant the Rock Church. And it was by the grace of God within just a very short period of time that we ran into a number of men and women who had also been praying about uh, the possibility of a church coming to Squamish that might have a, a fresh vision to be able to reach this community. And, and so they were legitimately here. Then, and very quickly, our church started, started to grow. And uh, really, within a few months, we were ready to, to launch. But it's interesting. The funny thing that happened is before coming here, I was going through, Janice and I would go to churches in the lower mainland. And uh, we were praying for prayer support, or you know, I would speak, but they, we were asking for prayer support. Pretty important. Going into a church plant, into a town and city, and people you don't really know. And, and, and secondly, that maybe some of the people in the room might, you know, decide to, you know, move with us and come help us plant this church. Well, none did, but anyway, uh, it was interesting. After, in two consecutive churches, uh, we had a little table at the back. We didn't have a name, the Rock Church yet. It was called Squamish Now, you know, and it was like, yeah, I'm, anyway, I won't mention what I used to do. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, it has to, like, what is wrong with me? Um, but anyway, it's not even for, for... Anyway, so I'm at the back, and, and in two separate churches, two women came up to me and said the exact same thing. They came up to me, and, and, and I remember the first lady very well. She used to have a store just three or four doors this way. Uh, she said, I used to live in Squamish. Do you not know that Squamish is a pastor's graveyard? <laughs> I was like, ma'am, thank you for the encouragement. But then it happened again the next Sunday. And I, I, honestly, I was like, well, like I, I said to Janice, why would people think that? Well, um, when we did finally arrive, we, as I said, found some people waiting for us. And within a few months, we had 16 adults and 12 kids, and uh, away we went. So another interesting thing happened, though, with that core group of people. Um, we would have coffees and meetings, and we'd talk about the vision of the church, and we'd settled on the name, and we, we were talking about when we might launch and things like that. But a lot of the people in that original core group kept asking me the same question. And the question was, are you going to try to work with the other churches in Squamish to bring unity to the local churches? Because there's a lot of division between the churches in Squamish. Now, I'm not saying, but that's what they said. And they started asking me, are you, so it's before it's like, okay, like, what's our worship going to be like? And what kind of preacher are you? Or whatever it might be. No, it's, that was... That was big on their hearts. So I took that pretty seriously, really. Um, but I got to tell you that, uh, that what happened from that was I'd never been part of a ministerial before. Again, those of you who know my story came out of the business world to plant this church. 
So this is my first time being a pastor, church planter, probably going to be my last. <laughs> um, and uh, I had never been part of what they call ministerials. So Matt and I found out where the ministerial was and who some of the, the men on it were, and we started to go. And uh, I remember really uh, going to those, and I remember reaching out uh, actually and being part of it. And I, I, I just remember um, sensing right away that there wasn't a real collegial feeling amongst the men. There was something going on. There, the, I didn't know how to put my finger on it, but um, it was discouraging. Honestly, I could sense it. And it was a wider range of guys, including Father Larry from the Catholic, the Catholic Church. He was actually the most fun. Okay? It was interesting. I became very discouraged about that because I consider myself a team player. I really do. Uh, I, I felt, okay, well, I'll try to be a leader amongst the leaders and I'll try to help with that. Right? Isn't that a good thing? I remember reaching out to a really good friend of mine, pastor in Vancouver, who was much farther down the road of church planting and pastoring than I ever was, and I shared with him what was going on. And he gave me some really, really good advice. He said, listen, Glenn, my advice to you is just focus on the rock. Just focus on your, your little flock of people. He goes, because believe me when I say this, you're going to have enough problems just making them unified down the road. Now, I'm glad what he said was not true. <laughs> no. That was really good advice. And so, actually, what happened shortly, shortly after that is the ministerial actually split up around that time. We didn't meet together for three or four years. A few churches splits, a few church splits, pardon me, happened as well. Pastors left, new ones came. <sighs> so, it, we, we just saw this happening within the community. And, um, yeah, it was very discouraging, but... At the same time, I want to just encourage you that in the past four to five years, things have changed. Uh, there is much more of a collegial desire to be together and, and to put aside theological differences or style differences, whatever they might be, and just get together and actually talk with one another. And you know what? Pray with one another. <laughs> and it's been a blessing. And so things are moving in the right direction. I think every one of those pastors that I meet with would concur with what I'm going to say today. The church is divided. The church of Jesus Christ is divided, and he knew that. That's why he prayed this prayer, because it's a prophetic prayer, looking forward. In his book, Until Unity, good old Francis Chan, many of our members really like him, I do too, he says this, we are currently, and he's, this is a recent book, we are currently the most divided faith, faith on earth, and there isn't a close second. If you think I'm exaggerating, name another religion with more than two or three factions. We have thousands of denominations and ministries, each believing their theology or methodology is superior. Now, I love Francis. I really do. But he has a tendency to conflate things. <laughs> you know, it's, he's not completely exaggerating, but maybe a little. I do know of some other religions that have numerous factions, but he's right. Now, thousands of denominations? I've heard that thrown out there. Uh, Hundreds, maybe. But it's a good point. But then he adds this, and I, this is the key to what he said that I think I wanted to leave with you today. He said, the saddest part of this is that our Savior was crucified to end our divisions, commanded us to be united, and says we will impact the world when we become one. It's the biggest issue in Christ's mind for our evangelism. 
is that we be seen to be loving one another, that we are unified. And so, as we approach the prayer of Jesus today, it is my hope to show you one very important thing about unity that I feel the Lord taught me back in the day when I was first going to these ministerials and praying about what to do. And then going on and just focusing on, as my good buddy in Vancouver said, Glenn, just focus on the things that are of first importance. What is that? It's the gospel. Just teach God's word. Focus on the gospel. And, and then what might happen is you might actually be able to encourage unity within one little church. I'll talk about how that's going with you a little later. Let's look at uh, um, Jesus' prayer. Now, it's a long prayer. I, I posted on Facebook on our private groups last night. If you had a chance to read the whole prayer, that'd be great. I actually was going to read it all for you this morning, but then this would be an hour and a half long sermon. Are you glad that I changed my mind? So we're going to do a bit of a flyover anyway, but I would really encourage today, if you haven't read it, go home and read the prayer slowly this week. Meditate on his prayer. starts this way. Jesus calling out to his father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. That's a beautiful prayer. I want to highlight there where he says, since you have given him authority over all flesh, you realize this is before his death, burial, and resurrection, where he says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. We assume that he was only given that authority after that resurrection. But again, this is a prophetic prayer. He's looking ahead at many times in this prayer. And so he says these things. Jesus is now, as I said, looking to his future. He can see the days ahead of of him, of his death, burial, and resurrection. This did not come upon him as a surprise. It's why he came. And so he's looking ahead to that, and he prays for himself. Look look what he prays for, that the Father would glorify him. Bring him back into the perfect relationship in heaven with the Father and the Spirit, which is full glorification for him. And so Jesus, why does he ask that? So, Well, he, he asks, actually, Father, glorify me so that I can keep glorifying you. Here, especially when this struggle is going to come upon me. So he's asking for the Spirit, the power to be with him, to continue to glorify the Father unto death, is what he's asking for. And so in verse 4, he tells us how he glorified the Father. This is wonderful. He says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, look at this, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What was that work? Well, we'll see a few of things, but it was to seek and save the lost. <laughs> and and he's, he's proclaiming to the Father, look, that's how I glorified you. I fulfilled the mission that you gave to me. I glorified you in that way. Then in verse 6, he tells us what that work actually looked like. Right In verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave to me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. So he manifested the Father's name. <laughs> he proclaimed the name of the Father. He, he, he came to show who the Father was and what he's like. He came to prove that the Father so loved the world that he sent 
me into this world. That's why he came. And so we see that clearly he was on mission. And, and that's where actually we get our mission statement from as well, right? Why does the Rock Church exist, Rocksters? To make Jesus known. Really simple. <laughs> to manifest his name in this community. So you also see here that Jesus is referring to us, to the church, the people the Father gave to Jesus. And from where? Look, again, you see those words, out of the world. We saw that in our spiritual warfare series that we are ecclesia, we are the church, called out ones. We're supposed to be, not in the world, but of, not of the world, pardon me, but in the world. And so we're called out. Jesus goes on to say that he's passed on his words. This is really, really crucial for us to understand unity, I think, at one point. Jesus passed on his words to the disciples, to the apostles, to everyone, which has been passed on to us as well. He passed on the word of truth to us, and we've received and believed it. He's letting his Father know that he's prepared them and us well. Let's put it this way. Not just well enough, well with what? The word. The word of truth. The word of God. He then adds in verse 9, I am praying for them. It's pretty clear. Because he then says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. And of course, he's also saying they're mine. I think it's a bit surprising in one sense, because our tendency is, again, John 3.16, for God so loved the whole world. Of course he did. But in this prayer, Jesus is saying, no, listen, listen, Father, I'm praying for those that you gave to me. They are mine. They are the church. I'm praying for them. I think sometimes in our world today, in our Christian churches today, we are more willing to pray for the world than we are to pray for our brother and sister in Christ in the local church that we're not actually pleased with right now. I'll just leave that there. Next, we hear him speak about unity for the first time in this passage. In verse 11, he says, I am no longer in the world. Okay, well, hang on a second, Jesus. <laughs> you're speaking. You're, you're, the disciples are right there. So again, it's prophetic. He, he's looking ahead. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be, there it is, one. Even as we are one. So building on this theme and his desire for our unity, he then prays in verses 20 and 21, I do not ask for these only. Oh, man, I love these words. Right? Because he's not just praying for the disciples standing right there and, and the apostles and for the early church. He is really looking ahead. I'm no longer praying. Pardon me. Um, I'm no longer uh, in this world. Sorry. <laughs> I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that's pretty critical, right? He's praying ahead for those who would hear the word from the disciples in that day, from the apostles, not just the apostles, from all of the disciples, and from those going forward from that day, including you and I. He's praying for them. That they may know, or all be one, pardon me, just as you, Father, are, look, in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So this is where I said last Sunday, actually for the last two Sundays, I believe, 
where we see this as being a prophetic future prayer. We see it several times in the passage. And here today, and also, I, I, there are all those who heard, pardon me, um, Jesus and the gospel through the apostles, of course, heard these words that Jesus was preaching and the disciples in the early day. So then this also, we see the relationship of that oneness. And it's beautiful. We could spend all kinds of time on this. This oneness that Jesus has expressed several times, go back into John 14, he in the Father, abide in us, we are one, you are in us. That oneness has existed before the foundation of the world. Amen? And that's what he's calling us into. And Adam and Eve, when they were born, they were in that oneness. They were already in that oneness. So his prayer is that we might be one with them and with the Spirit and with each other. And Paul, I love the book of Ephesians. I think most of you do, but he, he, uh, he, he just can't get over this. And the Spirit comes upon him, and first three chapters, he, he lays out the, the, the whys or the blessings that we have in Christ and who we are in Christ. And, and then, then he moves in chapter 4 into the application of that, and, and he just, his words are absolutely phenomenal in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, and I want to show them to you because it highlights this oneness in beautiful and important ways. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, <laughs> urge you to walk, you and me, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Hold it there. Love one another. Love one another. Be gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another. That word in the Greek, could be translated, put up with one another. <laughs> Don't treat one another just like the people in the world treat each other and say, yeah, we're done now. That was just too much. Can't have those kind of people in my life. Not be like that. And then he goes on beautifully to say, there is one body, the church, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope. There's no other hope. <laughs> There's one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The message is pretty clear, but Paul's like, I could keep writing. And he does. He nails it. So as I mentioned earlier, the Lord gave me a revelation related to unity of the local churches in Squamish that really helped me at the time, and I hope it will help you as well today. I say revelation. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm nobody special. Like I, I'm not receiving revelation like the apostles. Okay, let's just be clear here. But it was, it was one of those whoop, whoop, light bulb goes on moments, right, where you're just like, it's an epiphany. There's a good word, right? And I, I never, never saw it before. And it was based on one word in this text that we've seen. Do you see that one word? It's the word maintain. I'd never quite seen that appropriately before. It's, it's verse 3 where it says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, so, so first of all, we see that it's the Spirit's work that produces unity, right? It's the Holy Spirit's work that produces unity. Not yours, not mine, not a ministerial. It's His work that produces unity in the first place. 
So as noted already, Jesus' prayer was prophetic, and it has been already answered in part, actually in a very, very major way. And do you know when? How about the day of Pentecost? (laughs) When the Holy Spirit comes on a bunch of men and women, Jews from every nation who've come together for the Passover, they come together, they're in Jerusalem, right? And they're like, yeah, well, over here we, we do church this way, and over there we do church that way. And, you know, some of you are really good Jewish, and some of you are Samaritans, so what's with that, right? And they're not unified. Who falls on them? The Holy Spirit. They become the part, the beginning of the church. And they are all, the scripture teaches us in that passage, in one place and all of one accord. And they're hearing this crazy guy, Peter, preach this sermon. Whew! It was amazing. But then from that day on, so we've got all of the Jews from every nation, tongue and tribe, in the known world at that time anyway, one because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit doesn't stop, right? He never does. He goes on to bring who into the kingdom next, into the church next, and bring them into oneness with the church? Oh, the Samaritans. That's pretty interesting. And then, oh, oh, this was too much. The Gentiles? Yes, Lucy. (laughs) Uh, Oneness. Oneness all one in the church. So here in Ephesians, we also see the beautiful beautiful reflection of the unity of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I've said it before. I don't know where I've heard it from before. It's somebody definitely smarter than me. But, but one of the differences about the Christian religion versus every other religion in the world is that in order for there to be truly love, for us to actually understand love, uh, it, it must come from God, right? But how does a unipersonal God display love? What, he loves himself? The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit from eternity past have been in a mutual, submissive, loving relationship. They are today, and they always will be. Which which means you and I were made for that because we're made in his image. And and behind all of it is there is a desire for all of us, despite how divisive our world and culture is, which is painful, and and how much all of us take sides on all kinds of issues, you know in, in your heart, You really do want that, which is why when I say, when I look back at the early days of our church and people ask me for that, it it was a good thing that they were asking for that, right? It was a good thing, but it was about how do we create it? How do we, right? And so I look back on that and um, I got to tell you, so what about this word maintain? What's so special about that word? Well, what I discovered was that, listen, it is not my job or my responsibility to try to make, create Unity. I'll tell you what, every time I might try that, I'm going to do a really terrible job of it. No, instead, it's about maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the Godhead that already exists. Oh, is that new for you? Maybe not, but 13 years ago or whatever, that was really new for me to see it that way. It changed a lot of things. I feel like God said it to me like this. Glenn, my church in Squamish is already unified. What is your problem? And he said it this way. There are some of mine whom the Father has given to me in all of the churches in Squamish, Glenn, even in some that might surprise you. Mr. Theologically. What, what? I, I got to tell you, when, when I started thinking about it that way, my view of every other church in Squamish actually changed because I don't think my view of every other church in Squamish was perfect. 
No, it wasn't, let me be honest. But that changed. And then I feel that God basically said, listen, you just, you just go on and work on protecting the unity in the rock church that I've given you and the elders of this church and the members of this church to shepherd. And I'll tell you what, at some point, I'll put you together with some of the others in those other churches, and you can make me known and your love for one another known to this community, but not until you're ready to live that way. So we have unity in what? We have unity in and with the Spirit of God and the Godhead and with one another. We have unity in the truth. Oh, do we? Which is in the Word of God. We'll get to that more in our conclusion today. We have unity in that. And so those are the keys of what we have unity in or should. Number two, unity four. In this prayer, Jesus gives two important reasons for our unity. First is, same for him, God's glory. God is not glorified when we're in divisive places, when we are promoting division and dissension in the local church. He's not glorified. Jesus said he'd accomplish that by making the Father's name famous, by accomplishing the work that the Father gave him to do. So again, you and I know that by making Jesus known and by accomplishing the work that he gave us to do, we can glorify the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And and, and what is that work that he's given us to do? Mm -hmm. Matthew 28, go and make disciples who make disciples. That's the work that he's given us to do. I, you guys know me, I can, get, I can get into theological rabbit trails and discussions all day long, and then five days later realize I haven't done anything about making a disciple. <laughs> I've just figured out or gotten even more confused about a theological point or situation. So that's what we're called to do, and we should probably focus on that. Secondly, twice, and this is so important in this passage that Jesus calls it to be one, and, and what is our unity for? And you see it, I'll show it to you on screen again in verses 21, that they may be one just as you, Father, and I, uh, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also be, be in us, look at this, so that the world may know that you have sent me. And then in verse 23, he says the same thing, but slightly differently, in I, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Oh, that's the goal so that the world may know that you sent me. So, so our unity is for our testimony and our witness to the, this world. How? Well, we have to open our mouths. We have to go and tell people that the Father sent Jesus. Why? Because you need to have your sins forgiven. He, he sent Jesus to come and save you and me from our sins so that we can be reconciled to God and so that we can live with him for eternity. Jesus says, our unity is our testimony to this world. I, I find that an incredibly big challenge, right? Because again, like, I, I think we can all, as, as members of a church, as worship leaders, as pastors, as elders, as members, you know, we, we, we can do our best to do a good Sunday service, Right? We can, we can work hard at that. We do. It is an important thing to do. We can, we can do a lot of social work in the community. That's a good thing. 
And at the same time, we can allow relationships in our church to struggle with one another. We, we can allow our brothers and sisters to begin to da- go down the road of listening to and watching false teaching and not say anything. We, we can have brothers and sisters who we haven't seen in a long while. I'll get to that at the end. I'm getting ahead of myself. So, let me move to point number three, unity how. It is a challenge. First, I want you to remember the words of 1715 from today and what we focused on in our spiritual warfare series where Jesus said, I do not ask, Father, that you take them out of the world. Why would he even say that? Well, like I said in that series, because he knows it's going to get rough. And he's even thinking, the Father, you may be thinking. And Jesus says, no, Father, I don't want you to take them out of the world, but listen, that you would protect them from the evil one. So, friends, my word for you today is this. The enemy of your soul is the greatest enemy of the church. He does not like what's going on here today at all. He doesn't like you opening your Bible and reading it. He doesn't like you loving one another. He doesn't like you being a witness and a testimony of brotherly love, sisterly love, and unity to this world. He doesn't like that. He's your enemy. He knows this prayer of Jesus very well. He knows it. He could recite it better than you and I could. He really could. And Jesus knew what he would do to try and destroy our love for one another and the unity of our church family. He wants to, listen, breed, as we saw in our warfare series again, he wants to breed dissension. He wants to breed division and disunity in the local church. Don't let them. We're fighting him, not each other. It's not the way it looks half the time. He's doing it in your personal lives and relationships, and I'm personalizing this, by the way. He's doing it in your personal lives and relationships, mine too. He's planting deceptive ideas and lies in your mind and your brothers and sisters in Christ in this church, and based on envy, strife, pride, and even greed in our hearts, he's destroying you and those relationships. He's also doing that via deceptive ideas and lies that we are absorbing through what we read, what we watch, listen to, and trust instead of the truth of God's word. He's doing it by using outside influencers who are false teachers and then either by leading someone in our church away because of that false teaching or using them to become something in the church that nobody wants to identify any other member of their church as. Wolves. Wolves. He's doing that, friends. In his book called Acts 20, Fierce Wolves Are Coming Into the Church, Alexander Strzok, the author of possibly what I would call the best book on biblical eldership ever written, it's a really good one, it's the one we use to train elders here at The Rock, felt compelled 17 years after he wrote Biblical Eldership to write Acts 20. Why? because of what he was seeing going on in social media. And, 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 and his feelings for local elders and pastors in the church was, oh my, you're up against a lot more today than ever. And so he, be, he felt compelled to write this book based on just on Acts 20. Let me read you one verse or two verses from Acts 20, which is what he focuses on to unpack in that book. 
This is Paul. Listen, he's writing to the church in Ephesus that he planted only 18 months ago. He, he stops by on a, a, one of his last trips through that area, and he calls the elders of Ephesus to come see him at the seashore so he can give them this warning because he's pretty sure he might not make it back based on the way things are going. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among, among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So I've said this before, but I remember in the early days at The Rock when young people would come to me often, which was awesome, and they would ask me about, like, do you know a good book about this subject? Or, by the way, there's this book over here that a friend of mine is suggesting to me to read. Do you know the book? Do you know the author? Can you advise me? I got to tell you, back in the day, I was like, this is awesome. They're, they're, they're treating me like their pastor. Okay, that wasn't supposed to be funny. It isn't. But they were. And, and there were a few cases where I would go, oh, yeah, I actually do know the author. I do know the book. Um, yeah, no, I, can I recommend something better for you? And most of the time, people would go, yes, please. And so I wouldn't have to get into just actually telling them why this book and this author was so terrible or theologically off. That used to happen quite a bit. But I've got to tell you, over the past years, especially the past four or five, I'm feeling Alexander Strzok's pain. Because that hardly happens anymore. It hardly happens. I want to suggest to you that the proliferation on social media and podcasts and books that are way, 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 way off are almost impossible for me to keep up with. Except for the fact whenever there's a really, really crucial one that's really obviously leading someone astray, I will, I will dive in and read it. What I'll say about most of these books is this, from my experience, I'm a little older than the rest of you and I've read a lot of these books, is they're just a rehash of the same old heresies and apostasies that have been spread for the past 40, 50 years. They're just a little more clever. So it's painful to see that, but what's most painful about it is to see what it's doing to the local church. So wolves are not so much then just those, like Paul was writing about, who are actually physically in the local church. Oh, they're here. I'm not suggesting it's any of you. But they are in the local churches. But they're out there in huge numbers. Huge numbers. And so every pastor that I know of kind of feels like from time to time, like, what do you do? Because, see, I'm just this guy here, right? I'm not, I don't have 1.5 million likes to my podcast. I never will, by the way. So it's hard to compete, right, on that level. It creates a lot of concerns. So often today I feel like that voice crying in the wilderness when I put up John Mark Comer's book, Live Alone Eyes, and say, read that book. And nobody ever comes to me afterwards and said, I did. It was awesome. Thank you for that. Okay, a few of you do. But I would be encouraged if more of you would do. Friends, the best answer I can give to you today about how unity are these two things. First, you personally must be grounded in the truth. There's no other way around it. You personally need to be grounded in the truth, which is the word of God. And so listen, the first place you should go for that 
this is going to sound self-serving, but bear with me, is right here. It's the local church. That's the first place. You should go to your local pastors and shepherds, and then by extension, you should go to your church community through missional community groups, to one-on-one discipleship groups with the family that God has put you and placed you into for your edification and growth. That's the first place you should go to. And like I said, it might sound a little self-serving, but let me show you the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, which I think are critical. He said, and Jesus gave to the church, the apostles, he, Jesus, gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Hold it there. Jesus has given to the local church, yes, to the universal church, but also to the local church that you're part of, people with apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic, shepherding, pastoring, and teaching gifts. He has gifted them for you here. He goes on. I love this next word. Until we all attain to what? The unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is where it's supposed to start and actually finish in our faith, is amongst a local church. So friends, on this point, let me just say this. In healthy local churches, which I hope the rock is, those who preach and teach God's word are under the authority of the elders and the members of the church. If I get up here on a Sunday, we meet once a month as elders, and the elders were, will talk about things that are going on, then we'll talk about the preaching, teaching ministry of the church. And, and if at any point an elder has a concern or question, and trust me, over the years, they've had questions. That's brought up. I, yeah, Glenn, um, it's all been really good. Of course, they always say something positive to start, right? And they should. It's helpful. But by the, can you just clarify this? Because I'm not sure that came through clearly or rightly. So, so that kind of oversight is, exists in a local church. In a healthy local church, it should. But it also should exist in you. And that's why when we, we promote our missional community groups is that we encourage you to go throughout the week to missional community group to do what? Well, to have fellowship one with another and learn how to be family, which is really important, but then to dig deeper in the sermon that was preached on the Sunday before. Why do we want to do that model? Well, because there are questions. I didn't get that. I don't know if I agree with that. And then in our relationships, in community, we, we figure it out. And if we have a big enough problem about what was preached, we go to the elders never happened. Thank you, Lord Jesus. But it could. I'm not perfect. Nobody who gets up here is perfect. There's been questions. They need to be answers. So that's the hermeneutic of the local church, meaning that's how it's supposed to function. And also, that's how we maintain unity. Amen? It's critically important that we be immersed in that. Secondly, and this takes me back to the question I was asked many years ago, will you, Glenn, work to bring unity to the local churches or, for that matter, to the rock? Well, as I've already said, it's not my job (laughs) overall to do anything more than work at maintaining the unity of this local church. But also, listen, I'll add this. It's not my job alone at the rock. People often come to me after they've heard about someone who's falling away, potentially from the faith, or 
has been in a dispute with me or the elders of the church and, and or is, is, hasn't seen them for months and, and, and have they left or has heard that maybe they have and they come to me about that. And can I just be really honest with you? I'm getting a little tired of that. I'm just really, really honest. Why? Because I often say back to those people, well, why don't you go ask them? Now, I understand. None of us like conflict. None of us like to get in someone's face about that, but it's not that. Do you love them? Do you want them to be one with us? Listen, there are very good and real reasons to leave a local church, right? False teaching, you need to leave. Um, Elders, pastors that are abusive or will not discipline abuse in the local church, you probably need to leave. After having gone to the elders, at least, to say something to them, If you move away, like we saw last Sunday, where people are being moved and called to another area, that's a good reason to leave a local church. Sadly, I want to just suggest to you there are an awful lot of bad reasons that people leave the local church. And so as I close this morning, can I just ask you as a church family to take these words to heart from Christ and that we all take on the responsibility that unity is our responsibility? Our responsibility? One thing that you'll notice that happens with people who walk away or are led away or just disappear is the first thing that you'll notice is they either have never been part of community, community group in accountability relationships, or they've recently over the last several months stopped participating even in that. You need to go to them. What's going on? You okay? Why are you believing that? That's not a good reason to leave. Someone said something to you that you didn't like or did something to someone else. I'll tell you one of the main reasons why I only say to people, you should go talk to them is because I don't want to get involved in the biggest unity killer in the church. Gossip. Oh, it's alive and well, kids. That's the enemy's number one tool. As we start talking about each other and not to each other. Unity, it's desperately needed. As a church, it's been on our hearts. Many people who came to our worship and prayer night said, we need to pray about that. I hope what you've heard this morning might be helpful to that end. Pray with me, would you?